Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Sivan Hong. Sivan is the author and illustrator of the best-selling children's book series, The Super Fun Day Books, which celebrates the triumphs of neurodiverse children as they face challenges with determination and courage. Her titles include Benny J and the Horrible Halloween, George J and the Miserable Monday, Emily D and the Fearful First Day, and Avery G and the Scary End of School. Savan is also the mother of two neurodiverse children, and she herself has ADHD. In this conversation, we discuss Savan's discovery of her neurodivergence at age 47, how audiobooks opened her up to the world of reading, neurodivergent traits that help her writing, the difference between social stories and traditional children's books, why social stories are effective in teaching neurodiverse children to navigate challenging situations, the benefits of social stories for every student in the classroom, including neurotypicals, an excerpt from one of Savan's books about Halloween, why she focuses on strengths with her family, and tips for other parents. In this episode, discover what's possible when stories shape behavior. To learn more about Savan Hong, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Sivan Hong. Hi, Savan. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a brief introduction. I am a children's book author. I'm a neurodivergent children's book author, and I write and illustrate books for neurodivergent kids, usually from the ages of about three to nine, that shows them in examples of places where they can be brave and really highlights the strengths that they have as neurodiverse kids. Great. And you're also a parent. I'm a parent of two neurodivergent kids, too. So there's three of us in this house. And my husband is the one outsider who's neurotypical and sometimes looks around and has no idea what's going on. But the rest of us are totally in sync. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I hear that a lot from different family members. Could you give an example of a moment when that might happen? Sure. Um, I think the best example is in the mornings when we're all getting ready to leave the house and the kids will leave half-eaten breakfast, you know, on their seat while they're going to go get a book for their book bag and three dishes are taken out of the dishwasher to get put away while I'm running off to do something else. And there's just this level of, in my mind, organized chaos. But from somebody else's perspective, I think it probably just looks like chaos. But at the end of the day, we all end up exactly where we need to be. The books are in the book bags, the breakfasts have been eaten, and the dishes are put away. So like, 
one way or another we get there. It's just not linear. Nothing is ever linear. Okay, interesting. Huh. So what is your neurodivergence? So I have ADHD and I have a son who's autistic and has ADHD and another son who has ADHD and dysgraphia. Okay, got it. And could you explain what dysgraphia is? Sure. It's similar to the way people think about dyslexia when um, they think about the way words get processed in your mind differently with dyslexia. Dysgraphia takes that and says, okay, when I start writing, the words in my mind will look different on paper. So oftentimes you will see children who have letters and numbers switched and written in the opposite direction than they may appear in their mind. This world of neurodivergence has so many different things. And we often talk about autism as being a spectrum, but I think every part of neurodivergence is a spectrum. And there are so many places where they overlap. It's hard for me to be able to say, oh, this characteristic of my son is because he's autistic and this characteristic is because he has ADHD. It doesn't really work that way, right? Like all the lines are blurred. There are things about me like eye contact that I struggle with that most people would attribute to somebody who may be autistic, but it's also a trait that can happen with people with ADHD. And so Many times I think about these as kind of artificial constructs that we have created to just describe this spectrum of brain differences. Hmm. Yeah. For us to kind of comprehend what's happening. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Did you grow up knowing? So I found out about my neurodivergence when I was 47. And it was because both of my kids had been tested and identified and they looked at me and they weren't that old and they're still not that old, but they were much younger than they are now in elementary school. And they were like, mom, you are just like us. Go get tested. Hmm. And how could I say no, right? Like they had gone through it. I told them the process is fun and you get to, ask, you know, all these questions and all these like kind of puzzles that you do. And so I couldn't say no. So for my 47th birthday, I got tested. And Look, in the United States, it's very expensive to get tested, particularly as an adult. And it's not something that our healthcare system deals with very well. So it was my birthday present to myself. And I came home and they, you know, asked me how it went. And I told them how much fun it was. And then I had to wait, you know, two to three weeks to get the results. And when I got the results, they high-fived me and were like, welcome to the club, mom. <laughs> and so... We really try in my house to focus on the fact that this is something really cool, that having a different brain and thinking about the world in a different way is a strength we have. And that while the world itself may not always see it that way, and you know, things like education and other things aren't really necessarily constructed to fit the way our brains work. It doesn't mean that's not a strength. It doesn't mean that the things we bring to the table, the differences we have, aren't hugely important to society. Yeah. So in your 47 years before finding this out about yourself, did you have a sense that you were different or that you thought differently from your peers? 
I knew something was different. I didn't have a name for it, right? I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And the only way anybody thought about anybody who was neurodivergent, obviously that term wasn't there yet, um, was you had this idea of Rain Man, right? Like, that's what you thought. That's all you knew. That's all we were exposed to. And I wasn't like that. And I was also a girl. And nobody ever thought that girls could be neurodivergent. Like, it just wasn't a thing. But looking back, I mean, it was very obvious. I created my own fidget toys when I was little. So I used to take the metal hangers you get from dry cleaners, and I would bend them and keep them in my hand whenever I was watching TV or talking on the phone or doing any of that because I needed that other sensory input that I wasn't getting otherwise. I also had a lot of challenges with focus on reading and writing, and I couldn't understand why it seemed so much harder for me than it was for my peer group. And I had to work 10 times harder than everybody else, or at least that's how I felt, in order to be successful in a traditional public school setting. It just, it didn't click. Only when I got older and I was in college, probably a little after college, did I discover kind of books on tape, which are now audiobooks, but back then they were on cassette tapes. And it opened my mind to reading. It opened my mind to what everybody was talking about for all that time. And, you know, some people will say audiobooks aren't reading, right? That's kind of cheating or something. But the analogy I like to use is that you would never tell a blind person that when they read using Braille, that they're not reading because the words are entering their mind through their fingers. I think about it, that the words are entering my mind through my ears. And what matters is what happens to those words when they get into your brain and how you process them and what you do with them and not the mechanism in which you use to get them in there. And I read more than a hundred books a year now because this is the way that I'm able to consume that beautiful art form that is writing. Hmm. Yes. And I've definitely heard that argument about audiobooks and listening to the words rather than reading it on paper. So I, I hear what you're saying about what your brain does with the words once you have it. But is there like a scientific difference between when you read the word with your eyes and you hear it and when you touch it? So I'm not sure because I'm not a physician or a biologist, but at the end of the day, you read for enjoyment or for knowledge. And as long as I'm getting that from reading, it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter if it's scientifically different. What matters is that I love this novel and that it speaks to my soul or that my children can listen to books that they may have had a hard time focusing on and enjoy them, right? That it's accessible. It creates this level of accessibility that may not have been there before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you get started writing books? So it's interesting because as I said, I hated reading and writing. I was terrible at it. I even got an F in spelling in second grade, which still haunts me back when they gave children grades in second Mm -hmm. grade. But 
I noticed when my kids were young that I needed to write a lot of social stories for them to help them get through school. And social stories are this lovely tool that people use in special education to help children kind of process the social setting and process what's appropriate, how their feelings work, and then get to the result that kind of allows them to succeed. And I I created all these social stories for my kids and I was a big doodler. So I would draw along with kind of the words and oftentimes social stories do have pictures. And I realized I had all of these and they were super helpful for my kids and I needed to find a way to share them with others, right? Because it wasn't, can't just be about my kids using them and being successful and finding them helpful. If other kids could find them helpful, well, great. And I kind of had this level of hubris, I guess, for lack of a better word, where I was like, oh, I can just put these in a book. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. I had no background, you know, prior to having kids. I was a professor and I was in business and I had no idea what I was doing, but I went for it. And I wrote and published my first book about Halloween in February, which in hindsight, you're like, what? What did you do? Like, I clearly had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) But turns out that there's a need for books like this so that people like me and kids like my kids can see themselves in a picture book and think, oh, I'm not really so different. I'm okay. I'm normal. My Halloween book has a child who wears headphones in it. For the life of me, I couldn't find a photo, you know, a, a, a book that had a child wearing headphones when my son was in kindergarten and needed to wear headphones. So these books actually serve a real purpose to allow our kids to say, that's just like me. It's okay. It's okay to wear headphones because it's just like me. I'm not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so important in this community where people might be feeling like they don't belong in a classroom with other peers. So could you talk also about how your books have been used to guide neurotypical students in the classroom? Yes, absolutely. So it's one thing to have my kid or another neurodivergent child pick up a book and be like, that's just like me and see a kid wearing headphones and be like, all right, I'm cool. I'm good. But if you read this book in a classroom with other kids, neurotypical kids, and they see a character wearing headphones, then when they encounter a a peer in their class wearing headphones, it's not weird. It's not different. It normalizes that experience. And so when teachers read books like this, and it doesn't just have to be my book, right? Like we have, we're starting to get a canon of books out there for kids like this. But when neurotypical kids get access to it, they can walk into the lives of neurodivergent kids and understand it in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. There's often this this description in children's books that the books can be, you know, a mirror for a child so that they can see themselves. And it can also be a window or a door that allows you to look into the life of somebody else or step into their shoes. And that's the power of having diversity in children's books. Yeah. So could you elaborate 
a little bit more on that difference between traditional children's books and social stories? Yeah, absolutely. So when you really think about a social story, it's supposed to be a very simple story and it uses pictures and user-friendly language and it explains kind of expectations and rules for different kinds of social situations. And it has like one or two sentences on a page, really tries to be simple. And it's structured. It sets up kind of here's the situation. Here are the feelings that you're going to feel. Here are the steps that you take in order to have a positive outcome. And then here's the positive outcome you're going to have. So it's very, very structured. And all of my books are set up with this kind of structure. In fact, every child, every protagonist, I guess, in in my book will lay out the kind of five reasons why they don't want to do or are afraid of whatever it is that they're about to face. Every single book does this, and then it lays out kind of the solution to that. And they're real tips. They're not just, you know, ideas. Like these are real tools that teachers or parents use in the classroom. And then at the end, the child is very proud of themselves because they are able to do this on their own. A traditional children's book is going to have an arc of a story, right? Here's the character. Here's what happens to the character, the end. And it's, at times can be educational. They can have morals but it is not as rigid and it is not as structured. Oftentimes neurodivergent kids enjoy the structure because they know what's going to happen, right? Here are the steps. They're clearly laid out. They're numbered in my case. And here's the solution. And they're clearly laid out and they're numbered. And so it allows them to access that information in a way that they may not be able to do otherwise. The illustrations in my books are deliberately simple. The reason why I do this isn't just because I like to doodle and so they <laughs> they work for my artistic ability. When you read a child a book that has an incredible illustration, my children would all of a sudden not look at, at the main character in the illustration, but off in the corner, there could be like some little red bird in a tree somewhere that has nothing to do with the story. And start asking me questions about that because there's too many inputs for them. Hmm. So these books have illustrations that are deliberately simple to keep the child's focus on the story and what it's teaching them. The fonts are also all dyslexic friendly so that children with dyslexia can follow along and, and be able to kind of comprehend the book. And all of my books are available as audiobooks, of course, because that's how I consume words, but they have to be available to all different kinds of learners. And most recently, they're all out in Spanish too. So oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And what is your target age range for your books? About three to nine, depending on the kid. And again, you know, we have a spectrum of kids that could benefit from this. And so there are times that that child may be a little older than nine, but the typical is about three to nine. Okay. And I know there's so much research actually out there backing social stories as like an evidence-based practice that's used in teaching how to navigate certain situations. Do you think, or have you heard of any social stories for adolescents and how they receive it? I wish... I knew some. I haven't yet 
the number of children's books that focus on neurodiversity are less than 1%. And that's the whole gamut from kind of picture books like I do to young adult books. Like it is such a small market. And when you think about how many kids out there would benefit from these books, um, we haven't even come close to touching it. So I do think for your listeners out there, if there's somebody who wants to do that, there would be great demand because most of the books that target that age group are kind of young adult chapter books. And there's some incredible ones that have been written by autistic authors that really speak to the experience and are relatable to neurotypical kids as well. I'm going to plug a website that I have nothing to do with, but that has a great resource and novelmind.com lists a whole bunch of these books that you can find. And it's run by an autistic author named Sally J. Plod. She's written a bunch of children's books, but they're out there. They're hard to find again, because they're less than 1%, but that's a great place to look if you're looking for those kinds of books. Oh, great. Thank you. Okay, Savan, so you have a book with you to read for us today, one of your social stories. I do. So it's one because when we're recording this, it's the start of fall and it's one about Halloween. And again, all of these are true stories. Like this is actually what happened to my kid and how he dealt with it. But it's called Benny J and the Horrible Halloween because... Halloween can be really challenging for autistic kids and neurodivergent kids because there's so much change and there's so much sensory challenges. And so this was a book to help him kind of get through. I won't read all of it, but I'll start off with a couple of pages so you get the idea. Okay. Hi, my name is Benny J. My favorite things are eating chocolate ice cream with rainbow sprinkles and pressing the buttons on elevators. Tomorrow is the Halloween parade at school. Everyone will come in their costumes. My teacher, Ms. Austin, will be in a costume. All the parents will be in there to watch. Everyone says it's a super fun day. Everyone is excited about the Halloween parade. Everyone, that is, except for me. I'm not going. I know what you're thinking. Benny J, you say. Why don't you want to go to the Halloween parade? I knew you would ask me that, and I prepared a list of five really, really good reasons. Number one, sometimes I feel shy. I don't want everyone looking at me in my costume. What if somebody laughs at me? Number two, I won't recognize my teacher or my friends in their costumes and I will feel like I don't know anyone in school. Number three, it will be very loud, too loud. I don't like loud things. Number four, it will ruin our normal school day schedule. I like our school day schedule. It hangs on the wall in my classroom and it's the same every day. Number five, I won't be able to find my parents cheering for me at the parade. All the other kids will see their parents. See, I told you, it's a really, really good list. And then I will let you guys find out what happens and if he manages to get to the Halloween parade by the end of the book. But 
like I said, it's based on a true story. When my son was in kindergarten, he was all dressed in his costume to get dropped off at school and wouldn't get out of the car. And I Mm -hmm. couldn't understand because as a parent, you know, and in this kind of consumerist world we live in, Halloween is supposed to be the most incredible holiday shy of Christmas for kids. So, (laughs) so why wouldn't he want to go into school and like have the party and, you know, be in his costume and do all this stuff. And um, and he wouldn't get out of the car and he sat there for 90 minutes until all of the Halloween festivities were over. And then he went to school and it took a year to understand because he was in kindergarten and took some time for him to explain what all of those things were that were making him afraid to go and participate. And so the following year, we were able to incorporate headphones into his costume and just a tip for all you parents out there, the costumes, you know, that are like pajamas, that are really pajamas, but that kind of look like a character work really great for autistic kids because they're soft and they don't have tags. And, you know, being able to think about it from that perspective and not a neurotypical perspective to say, what are the things that could cause stress here? What are the unknowns? And then be able to come in and say, okay, here's how we're going to do it. And by first grade, he loved it and had a great time. And one other note, just to to call out, all of my books have teachers in them, and they're the real teachers that help my kids. And I use their real names as a way of saying thank you for all the incredible work that our teachers do to get these kids kind of having a wonderful experience in a school system that isn't really designed for them. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's really thoughtful of you to give him a little shout out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine how this can be so helpful for someone to even see or hear their feelings being validated. Yes. I guess these are the things that I'm going through when maybe they might be feeling misunderstood in, in many situations. It gives them the tools to kind of be like, that's how I feel. If they don't have the words, if they don't understand or to just come up with their own list of here's my five. And I I actually get emails from parents saying, after my child's read your book a couple of times, they walk around and every time there's a problem, they give their five lists, their, their list of five things that they are feeling because it creates a structure that then allows them to talk, mm-hmm. right? It teaches them how to then learn how to express those emotions and to realize that it's okay to express those emotions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some other topics that you cover in your books? I cover the first day of school, which is an obvious one for all of us. And then I cover the end of school. And this is one that's less obvious because our kids are used to a schedule for about nine months. And then all of a sudden that schedule goes away and they kind of, they jump off this cliff of change where summer tends to be unstructured and They don't know what's going to be next year. They don't know their teacher. They don't know if they're going to see their friends. They don't know any of those things, right? And at that age, they haven't really processed that it's going to be okay. So oftentimes the end of the school year is harder than the beginning of the school year. Mm. I tackle Mondays because parents have a hard time with Mondays, but kids often have a hard time with Mondays. Again, because of the change, right? The weekend was one thing. And then all of a sudden they have to come back to school and there's all these unknowns and there's all these fears. And 
school anxiety is the most acute on Mondays because it's that transition and that change is hard. And then there's one that I'm releasing this fall about the holidays, which is actually my first book that I've done that's not about school, but I had a lot of requests from parents asking to write one because the winter holidays are tough for parents. They're tough for lots of people, um, parent or otherwise, but they can be really challenging for our kids and how to lay out a plan so that these kids can feel like they have the tools that they need to succeed for the winter holidays. You know, one of the tips is flashing lights can be really challenging for our kids, right? Right. Don't have them. Or if you decorate your house, don't do it all at once because all of a sudden that change can be really jarring. It doesn't feel like their house anymore. Do it piecemeal at a time creating a place where they can have a quiet spot that they know that they can go into. If you have company, like this is just for me, this is where I can get away. This is where I don't have to interact with anybody or using a a photo book or pictures to walk through here, the guests that are coming Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't feel like there's a bunch of strangers in the house. So there's a lot of things that you can do to make that holiday season a little less stressful and having those conversations and having that plan in place, which is what helps with the social stories can make a real difference. So that's the one that I'm releasing in a couple of weeks. Great. Yeah. I mean, even as you're talking about that, I'm getting ideas of like books that I want you to write also, (laughs) (laughs) like a travel one, or I don't know if you've done that Uh or even have you touched on the topic of bullying? I haven't touched on the topic of bullying. It's on my list. Going to the dentist is on my list because Mm. there are so many sensory challenges in going to the dentist. So there's a bunch that are still in kind of, but I love the travel one because you're right. I remember traveling with them when they were like two and four by myself and how great it was that people were high-fiving me in the airport because I was with two boys by myself. And, Mm. you know, all it took was like that little bit of extra support. But there's so much that airports have been doing now to support autistic kids and helping them get through that process. Right. So there's a lot there. There's a lot of good stuff happening out there. Good, good. Okay, Savant. So switching gears a little bit, you know, you mentioned earlier that you like to talk about and highlight strengths in your household. So how do you think your neurodivergence has helped you in writing these books, like the process? So one of the great strengths of having ADHD is that you can hyper-focus. And what that means is that, you know, there's this misnomer about ADHD. It means that you don't, you can't focus on anything. And that's actually not true. You don't focus on everything, but when you focus, you go deep. So for me, writing these books, I would just, you know, hyper-focus for days, remind myself that I had to eat and, you know, set an alarm to be like, go pick up the kids from school now, right? Like, but it allowed me to publish a lot of books in a relatively short amount of time, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I didn't have that particular strength. Mm -hmm. It also allowed me to kind of put myself in the shoes of my characters, right? There's 
an authenticity that comes from understanding that experience. And I use my children in that as well, right? These are true stories that happened to them. And I needed to make sure that the fears and their thoughts were authentic. Because if they weren't, if I just made them up, then they weren't going to connect with anybody, right? The idea was, how do I take their experiences and my experiences and allow other families to benefit from that? And so that's where kind of the strength comes in. And honestly, like the fact that I doodled all throughout my education allowed me to illustrate the books, even though I don't have a background in art whatsoever. So I give credit to my fidgetiness there too. Okay. (laughs) What do your kids think about their lives and experiences being published? They still think it's pretty cool. They get to kind of pick the names of the characters. And when there's ever other kids mentioned in the book or labels on a desk with other kids' names, they get to pick their friends. So they get to kind of put their stamp on it. I have a middle schooler now, so I'm not sure anything I do is cool anymore. But relatively speaking, they like it. It's something that they're proud of and they get excited when they see a new book come out. And there are my tests, you know, before I let anybody else edit it, I test it with them to make sure it resonates and to make sure that it connects with my target audience, which is them. Mm-hmm. Great. And how do you talk about their strengths with them? Like, let's even talk about autism specifically. Yeah. So my son was diagnosed at two and a half. I probably would have known that he was autistic when he was three months old if he had been my second son and not my first son. I didn't have anything to kind of compare it to. But once I learned, I was like, oh, this is pretty obvious. And At that point, we started talking to him about his special brain from that moment on, because I didn't want it to get to a point where he was like, why am I different? What's wrong with me? And start feeling a sense of dread about who he was. And so we started highlighting him things that he does that are great. And, you know, he had special interests. And so even though, and the book that I just read talked about loving the press buttons on an elevator because he loved to do that and knew everything you could possibly imagine about elevators, the companies and the models and whatever. But like, what a great strength. Like you are able to understand something at a depth that most people your age, certainly at like three and four would never be able to do. Or his ability to do puzzles was incredible, right? And we would highlight that and be like, look at what you can do. And this is part of your special brain. And that makes it great. And it's not, I don't want to make it seem like we Pollyanna'd everything and pretended like there weren't challenges because of course there are challenges, but the entire world will sit there and tell him about his challenges. You sit through a PPT meeting and all you do is hear about his challenges and the things he can't do. And I believe that as a parent, it is my job to keep reminding him about all the incredible things he can do, right? Because if I remind him of that, when he looks in the mirror, he will see it. And I literally used to have him do this when he was like five or six and look in the mirror with me. And I would be like, okay, give me something that you're great at. 
Tell me something you're amazing at. Give me one of your strengths and say it out loud to himself because I never want him to feel embarrassed or ashamed about who he is and his difference. His difference is incredible. And we need to figure out as a society how to allow these kids to shine in what they're good at and what they're passionate about and not say you have to fit into this particular mold. Now, society is not there yet, but I'm going to make sure that my kid looks in the mirror every day and is like, being autistic is cool. My brain works in ways that other people's brains can't. And that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think this comes from a personal experience? Did you ever feel like maybe your strengths weren't highlighted when you were younger and now you want to change that for your kids? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, and I couldn't put a label on it back then because I didn't have a diagnosis and nobody talked about these things. And I wasn't an idiot savant like Rain Man, right? Like, That wasn't me, but there was clearly a difference in the way my brain worked. And there was clearly a difference in the way I saw things and tried to solve problems or whatever. And, you know, that they talk about how often neurodivergent kids hear negative messaging about themselves. And it's like thousands of times before they're like eight or nine years old, right? That like, because you can't sit still or because you don't have strong, fine motor skills. So your handwriting isn't isn't kind of great. Like these are all the things that are, that you're bad, right? That that you don't fit into the mold of the way a student is supposed to fit in. We can't do that, right? Because if we do that, we're missing out on what these kids can bring to the world, right? It's a detriment to society. One of the stories I've told my kids is about there was a Nobel laureate scientist called Niels Borg. And he was a role model and a mentor for Oppenheimer and the movie just came out. So I'll reference that so that people know who he is. But he was the one who figured out the structure of an atomic cell, what an atom is, right? And, And what that looks like. He has a PhD or had a PhD in physics he wasn't able to physically write his dissertation because writing was such a challenge for him. His fine motor skills were not great and his mind went so fast that his handwriting could never keep up and they didn't really you know, type things to the same degree, right? And this happened to him throughout all of school. So his mother used, he would dictate everything to his mother and his mother used to write it out. Now he is one of the most pivotal people in physics in the world, in history. But had we told him that because you can't write yourself, you're not good enough, you shouldn't, you know, you're going to fail out of school, go do something else, we would have missed out on his incredible mind. He had this gift. And because he couldn't fit into the mold of traditional education, it didn't mean that that gift was any less. There's a recent study at at Harvard University, where they took a bunch of astrophysicists and they compared the astrophysicists that had dyslexia with the astrophysicists that didn't. And they showed them images of black holes. And the ones that had dyslexia were able to identify black holes significantly more times than those without it, because their mind has a spatial awareness that looks very different to a neurotypical brain. 
We always talk about dyslexia as this inability to be able to read. Well, that's nonsense. Dyslexic brains have unbelievable spatial capability. If we talked about it like that, these kids won't feel so bad about themselves. There are strengths in every single one of these kids, right? We keep hearing these stories, at least in the United States, that people are flabbergasted that nonverbal autistic kids are graduating from college with honors. People always just assume that if you couldn't talk, it meant you weren't smart. That's nonsense. But 20 years ago, that child would never have had the opportunity to go to college. Nobody would have ever imagined that that was something that could be done. We have to start changing the way we view these minds to focus on what they can do and how much they can do because so many of them have these incredible strengths. And so that is what I'm passionate about. And that is what I keep reminding my kids about. That's what the data shows, right? The rest of society just needs to catch up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just published a throwback episode with Temple Grandin, and she talks about why the world needs different kinds of minds to work together. Yeah. So that's it. Exactly. And also, you know, on more individual level, highlighting strengths and what people can do will also just, in theory, reduce anxiety and depression and suicide rates. That's right. Because if you think your difference is a good thing, then you can go forth and write and do what you're going to do. But yeah. if you're constantly reminded that your difference is bad, that's why self-esteem is so low. That's why these kids suffer so much, right? Yeah. What a disservice we're doing, not only to them, but society because of what they could bring to the table. Yeah. Okay, Sivan, I'd like to close with one last question. Sure. What advice would you give to other parents? I think my biggest piece of advice, aside from what we talked about, which is focusing on the positive, is to connect with other parents. I was fortunate enough to be living in a town where we have a, a parent group of parents with kids with all sorts of you know, differences. And we come together and give each other advice and our support network. And knowing that somebody else has walked through your shoes can be so comforting. When you get that diagnosis, whatever it is, it's hard, right? It's hard to realize that your child is different. It's hard to realize that the path you thought that they were going to be on is not the path that they're going on. And by seeing that other parents have been there and are thriving and that it's okay will make that so much easier for you. And look, you know, social media can be helpful there. I'm not usually a big fan of social media, even though I'm on it to help share my books. But this is one way that social media can be really helpful because you can hear from other parents that are thriving in this role and doing everything they can for their kids. Yeah. All right. And how can people learn more about you? So I'm the only Saban Hong in the world, which is helpful. So um, you can go to my website, which is SavanHong.com. And I'm fairly active on Instagram. And I post a lot about focusing on the positive of neurodiversity and giving lots of examples. And I'm Savan underscore Hong underscore author on Instagram. So those are the best places to find me. Okay. And we'll put those links in our show notes. Thank you.
All right. Thank you, Savan. Thank you so much for sharing today. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Social stories were first created in 1990 by Carol Gray and have since gained massive popularity among parents and special educators. Savan's book series is making a huge difference in the lives of neurodiverse children and those around them. Do you have any personal experience with social stories? Share your perspectives over in our online Global Autism community. Whether you're a family member like Savan, hoping to support and empower your loved ones, a self-advocate wanting to share your story, or a professional seeking to improve your practice, our Global Autism community is a place for you to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.